So, uh, so we were thinking something there about uh, miracle worker and way maker. And I came here just over a year ago. And uh, God called Ruth and myself here to uh, be a part of this community, this body of Christ, to um, see what the Lord was doing among you, to ask the Lord to do uh, spiritual renewal and relational renewal and a few other things. And God has been at work because God is on the move. You know that. God is on the move. And so uh, eventually we started a search team, and the search team began looking for uh, the next pastor, the next person to be lead pastor here at Forest View. And I'm just saying this morning that it's very, very remarkable that the search team, all of the search team, the leadership team, all of the leadership team, it's all the elders, the staff, all of the staff, uh, in meeting Nat and in uh, learning more about Nat, feels totally convinced led by the Holy Spirit, that uh, Matt is the next man to come here as a lead pastor at Forest View Church. It's quite remarkable that everybody who, who knows him is of one heart and one mind. I'm just saying that. Uh, this man loves the Lord. He loves his wife, Julie, down here. Loves his two kids, um, Beckett yep. and Alea. That's right. Did I say her name right? You got it right. Yeah. Alea. Okay. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to pray for Nat before he brings the Word of God to us today. Um, he loves the Word of God. He loves this Word of God. And he loves the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pray for you, brother. Father, I thank you for Nat. I thank you for how you've got a hold of his heart and his life and how you're forming him uh, and how you have uh, walked with him and Julie through hard times and through good times. And your mercy, Lord, your grace, your truth is upon them. So I pray that you will fill him up with your Holy Spirit as he brings the word of God to us today. Uh, teach us, Lord. And lead us more in your ways so that we really are a community here where people meet Jesus and become more like Jesus. So we give him to your care. Thank you very much for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Doug. Good morning, Forest View. It is so good to be with you this morning. I, I just want to say just off the start, it has been an incredible joy getting to know so many of you, from the search team to, to the leadership team, to the staff here, and to the various different people who have come up and introduced themselves and welcomed Julie and I here. And we are, uh, we know we're not all the way there yet. Uh, so it makes it a little bit in that awkward place, but we are just so excited for what God is doing here at Forest View. And, and just your calling and your desire to move into this next season of who is God calling us to be and how can we better go and reach the world and be a, a, be a church and be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. And that is just so in line with our heart as a family. And we are just so excited to see churches that are doing that. And it just, it fills us with joy and excitement and so much hope. 
This morning, I get the pleasure of joining in on your Sermon on the Mount series. And uh, the topic I was given, or the passage I was given, is found in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 34. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or open up the app or whatever it is you do. And this morning, we're going to be talking about worry, which is really apparent for me because I've been worrying all week about this. <laughs> a few interesting statistics. First off, if you were to go and do a very, look at surveying most of North America, they kind of went, they did this, they did a study and found what are the top things that people worry about. Uh, and they say kind of the four top things where people worry about their health, people worry about job security, they worry about their relationships, and they worry about their finances. Two out of five Canadians say they worry every single day. Single adults, one of their top worries is housing and finances. And uh, an interesting stat would be that 86% of Americans and probably Canadians too worry about growing older. Now, another interesting statistic they have found across the board that as you grow older, you worry less. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. Maybe it's because as you age, you realize all the stuff that you used to care about actually doesn't matter that much, or maybe your memory just starts to go and (laughs) doesn't matter. Worry is a really interesting thing. There are all sorts of studies that have looked at the negative effects that worry can have on us biologically, physiologically. It can impact your health. It can have a dramatic impact on you. And then there are other people who argue, oh, wait, maybe worry has benefits because it helps you be more imaginative and to play out various different scenarios so you can better interact with the different situations that you encounter. And then there is a whole other group of people who simply profit off of our worries. I mean, we think of the world, the attention economy, all of those different websites and social media and news networks that are constantly vying for our attention to keep us watching. And they throw that headline out there or you see the title of the article that is purely clickbait and you're just like, I need to check that out. And then there's all sorts of other ones who use worry to get us to buy their products. I immediately think of a, a particular ad campaign that started, I think it was about 15, 20 years ago. I remember watching it for the first time, and uh, they brought up this term called being nose blind. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this term. Nose blind. Essentially, the idea behind it is this. You can be around a smell for so long that you don't realize that it's even there. And this terrifies me. And it should terrify you too, because you could stink, and you would have no idea. Some of you are reevaluating your entire morning. It's like, wait, they sat down beside me, and then they got up and walked away. There is so much we have to worry about in our culture and in our age. Now, one thing I want to quickly do is to create a bit of a difference between fear versus worry. Because fear, there is all kinds of negative, dangerous fears, things that paralyze us, that hold us back from living the life that God created us to know and to experience. But then there are really healthy fears. A couple months ago, uh, I, uh, I had some work around the house that I needed to do. We had, uh, there was just all these old like cinder blocks and, and uh, concrete tiles that we had for a back patio and bricks, and we'd had some trees cut down, so there's all these just different uh, branches and sort of things around the side of the house. And, and most of them had actually been there since before we moved in, and we've been there now five, six years. And so it's like, okay, I guess it's time to get rid of all of this junk. 
And so uh, my in-laws, they're farmers. They have a nice big pickup truck with a, uh, with a landscaping trailer. And I was like, all right, this is the day I'm going to go. I'm going to load everything. I'm going to borrow the truck and trailer. I'm going to load it up. I'm going to drive to their farm. They have a wood pile. They have a place where I can go and throw all the rocks and stones. And then it, it can be gone. And so this one particular day, we get the, I get it, the trailer, I back it into the driveway, I'm going, I'm getting the wheelbarrow, I'm loading everything in, and I live by the philosophy, work smarter, not harder. And so what I did was I took all of the branches, which were typically lighter than all the concrete, and I put them at the front of the trailer, and I put all the heavy stuff, the rocks, the bricks, the, 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 the tile, I put that all at the back of the trailer. Some of you are seeing where this is going. Some of you are like, I don't know, but I'm in. I'm interested. What's going to happen? And so I load everything off because I have to unload it. And I'm like, I want to do as little work as possible. And, and everything is great. And I put the, car, the, the back gate up and I, I tarp it and I put straps on it like nothing is going anywhere. I'm being really safe. And I start driving. I get on the highway and I hit 65, 70. And suddenly it's like, this is not right. I get this feeling and I look in the rear view mirror and there is this trailer is like swinging back and forth. And I realize I am completely out of control. And this adrenaline just starts shooting through my body. It's like, you need to do something. You need to do something. And, and immediately I'm just thinking through, I'm like, I am going to die and I'm going to kill all the people around me. I'm like, I'm, env I'm visualizing the news headline, like idiot youth pastor doesn't know how to load a trailer properly. And so I, I, I was like, okay, took the foot off the gas a little bit, or slowed down, pulled to the side, went out, tried to readjust as best I could, and then continued on my drive to my in-laws, nice and slow. Now I think about that experience and my immediate response, which was, I'm going to die, I'm going to hurt other people, I'm going to potentially kill other people, I need to do something to stop this. And then I thought, what would 11-year-old boy me do? And I imagine that when I look in that rearview mirror as an 11-year-old boy, I would look back, see that trailer going back and forth and think, not think, I need to stop, I'm going to hurt someone, I'm going to get killed. I would think, hey, that's kind of cool, let's accelerate, like step on it. And this is exactly why we don't let 11-year-old boys have licenses. But, but as I've grown older, I've become more mature, well, arguably. I've certainly become more aware of the reality of death and responsibility, and so that's made me interact with life differently. Sometimes we're faced with difficult circumstances, dangerous circumstances, and fear is a healthy response to it. But then there's worry. And worry simply isn't just an immediate response to a particular situation we're facing. It's, worry always involves a projecting onto the future of what we think could happen or might happen. It involves imagination and creativity. How many people do you know in your life who seem like the most unartistic, most uncreative people in, your world, in the world, and yet they can come up with all sorts of elaborative, creative ways in which a particular situation can go wrong? How many of us have stayed up at night, lying awake in bed, playing out different scenarios or situations or conversations that haven't even happened, and yet we find ourselves having this almost infinite number of them in our minds? We can create all of these situations in which we dwell on them and we let them consume our heart and our imagination. So this morning, we are going to be talking about worry. Let's dive into the passage, Matthew chapter 6. 
starting at verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body and what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run around after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah, sure. We don't see this often, but uh, this, this seems ridiculous, but new electric needs uh, access right away to their gate, and we're blocking it with a car, so I don't want to embarrass anybody, but <laughs> we need black Honda CKZB188 uh, to move so, we can, so they can get in. Don't look. Everybody close their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that weird kind of like the ultra call, like put your heads down, hands <laughs> up. <laughs> no problem. I'm actually just glad it's not me. Um, that would have made things really weird. Before we dive into unpacking that particular passage, I want to give two disclaimers. The first one is this. Uh, throughout this message, and probably even in, your, in the translation you may have been using, uh, the word that is often kind of used interchangeably with the word worry is the word anxiety. And at this particular cultural moment, the word anxiety is loaded within our culture. It just has so much meaning. And, and there's such a spectrum about what that means. It's like, I'm nervous about this. I'm, go, I'm like thinking about this a lot, all the way up to anxiety disorders and mental health conditions. And sometimes this passage can be used, I would argue, in really destructive ways. It doesn't take into consideration the nuances and, and, and the complexity of working with such a spectrum. And so sometimes we can use this passage, or the last thing I want as, as we examine this passage together, and as I speak uh, this message, is for this to be a situation where we beat up on people who are dealing with anxiety. Sometimes the church is the worst place to be when you are dealing with that. Sometimes we approach it in this way of, well, you just are a weak person if you're dealing with anxiety, and you just need to pray more, or believe more, or read your Bible more. And the reality is this, is that we are all biological, emotional, spiritual beings. And all those things are just meshed together, and we don't know where one ends and where one begins. And for some of us, we go through experiences of incredible trauma. For, for some of us, we go through difficult encounters or, or just our temperament. Uh, for some of us, we come out of life bruised and injured. And God, sometimes God works through his healing process through things like counselors, therapists, and even various different types of medication. And so this passage today is not simply to say if you're dealing with anxiety, like, suck it up and get over it. 
But for some of you, part of that healing process may be walking through these things and seeking professional and medical help. And that's not to say we need to rush into all these things and charge into it, but but what we do want to do is remove the stigma of it. Because the reality is this, we are all broken people who together are working through and following Jesus and allowing his healing to change and transform our lives so that we can experience wholeness. Disclaimer number two is that completely honest about this, this passage drives me nuts. I know for some of you, you read this passage and, and, and maybe this is a favorite for you. You're familiar with it and it's, it's comforting and it's reassuring. And it's just like, oh yeah, everything's gonna be okay. Uh, but but I, for me, when I read this, I just see like, I'm, like, I'm in this Jesus, like Christianity thing because of Jesus. I'm so intri- like, just so intrigued by him. And, but when I read this passage, there's this part of me that goes, Jesus, are you just out of touch with reality? Like, it's great that this works for you. You can walk around and you can be going through all these issues. It's like, yeah, yeah, think about the birds. It's like, that doesn't work in my life. That's not how it is. I have responsibilities. I have a family that depends on me. I I have all these different things that I need to do. I'm not in a nice warm climate. I can't be surfer dude. You know, like, whoa, everything's cool. Like, that is not possible for me. And sometimes, or at least there have been times when I've read through this passage and it just feels tone deaf and out of touch. And so I just simply wanted to say that if that is your response this morning when you first hear that or when you've come across that, I just want to say you're like, I don't want to say you're with good company, but hey, you're stuck with me. Um, You're not alone. This passage comes out of, as you probably all know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So this is an excerpt or a part of a larger sermon. Uh, And so I get to give a sermon on a sermon, which is actually kind of reassuring and also really humbling because no matter how good I am today, I'm still preaching at best the second best sermon you're going to hear this morning. You've already heard the best one already from Jesus. Uh, and just to summarize this, because I know you guys have been working through this, but this is sort of my take. If I had to like break down what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about, wh- what it's trying to do, is there some sort of overarching theme? I would say it's this. The overarching theme to the Sermon on the Mount is what a life in sync with the reign of God looks like for all of us, internally and externally, individually and communally. Let me just say that again, because I can't have a slide for you. Uh, the overarching theme to the Sermon on the Mount is what a life in sync with the reign of God looks like for all of us. So internally, what's going on in the inside? The stuff that only we see, that only God sees. And externally, how, do we per, or how are we perceived by other people? Individually, like what's going on, just my life, how I interact with God, my relationship with God. But, but then there's the communal element to it too. How does our lives intersect and interact with each other? Now our text today begins with the phrase, therefore, and whenever you see that, you know I have to go back a little bit and figure out what's saying, because whatever is being said is somehow connected to what was said before it. So we're going to look back at a passage that was looked at by Mark a couple weeks ago. And just starting at verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, now, the word that is usually translated there as money is the word mammon. It's an Aramaic word. It would have been the language that Jesus was probably speaking as he gave these sermons. 
And that word isn't just simply mean currency or coins. It carries with it a whole other depth of meaning for them in their culture. So it would have been anything that had some sort of monetary value. It was something that had value and worth that they could trade or exchange for various goods. So it might have been clothing. It might have been food. It might have been property. It could have been any one of those things. And Jesus is speaking to this community and saying, hey, if you are going to make your life all about seeking after these things, if these are going to be the sources that bring you comfort and security and a feeling like, yes, I am living a good life, he says, if you are prioritizing those things, realize that is going to bring you into direct conflict with the kingdom of God, that you can't have both. And essentially he says, if you are serving one, you are going to start to hate the other because they are going to be pulling you in completely opposite directions. And Jesus realizes as he's saying this to his audience of his followers, who are all people who either have money or probably the majority of them don't, and they're just living day to day trying to survive, trying to make enough to feed themselves, maybe their families. And, and Jesus realizes that a whole bunch of them, they are constantly worried and consumed with this. And so that leads him into talking about worry. And he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, or about what you're going to wear. He says, life's about so much more than that. And he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not much more valuable? Aren't you much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And do not worry about clothes. See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? A little bit down there, if you jump ahead, he writes, says this, for the pagans run after all of these things. Now, now I would argue this, that Jesus, what he is trying to awaken his audience to is to make them aware of, is he is trying to address their fundamental deep-seated beliefs about what God is like. In the pagan world, there were all sorts of different gods, and for the pagan, the world seemed like it was this place that was completely out of control. And these gods were indifferent or angry, and you needed to do whatever you could to try and keep them happy. Essentially, you wanted to get the gods on your side, and so you'd do various different rituals or practices or sacrifices or whatever it was to make sure that you were keeping them happy, and then they would bless your life, and you would be able to live a nice, good, comfortable sort of life. The gods were constantly upset or indifferent, and it was your job to constantly win them over. And Jesus is speaking to his audience, and he's saying, is this your view about who God is? Do you think he is out to get you? Do you think that, that he doesn't care about you and that you need to earn and become worthy of his care and attention? Uh, when I first started at the church I'm currently employed at called Creekside, uh, I work with the youth and young adults. And so we, we started this night, we called it Faith and Doubt. We were doing a series on faith and doubt. And the first night of the series, the, the entire focus of it, I gave out little slips of paper and it said, sometimes I doubt that and I left a line. And we gave out pencils and we had them all write in, just what are some of your doubts? And we collected them all. And the idea was that I would read them out loud to the group, not give any kind of commentary and try and answer and, and, and get away or do away with their doubts, but simply to bring, create a space where people could know that 
they were not the only ones who were wrestling with these doubts. And so I had a certain expectations about the kinds of questions I was going to receive. Actually, the first one I opened up, it was like, sometimes I have doubts that Nat is actually legally, old enough legally to drive, um, which was like, was a good one. Um, and I assumed I was going to see a whole bunch about, uh, like, things like, uh, sometimes I, I, don't, I, I doubt that God is real. Sometimes I doubt that the Bible can be trusted. Sometimes I doubt that miracles can really happen. And there were a few of those, for sure. But, but the ones that really struck me, and, and actually what struck me was that how many of them there were, were the ones that said, sometimes I doubt that God really loves me. Sometimes I doubt that God has really forgiven me. Sometimes I doubt that my existence matters. And then it got even more interesting. Some of them, they would write the because. Sometimes I doubt that God loves me because why would God let me be abused? Why would God let that relationship fall apart? So often we can look at our circumstances And we use that to define how God sees us and how God cares about us. And I believe Jesus is actually addressing this very view and this misconception that we have. This feeling that we need to win God over. And sometimes this happens in really like kind of almost silly ways that I think we all know isn't true, but yet we feel it, right? It's like you got up in the morning early, but the sun hadn't risen yet, you prayed. It's like, and then you get a parking spot and you're like, yeah, this is great. God's blessing me because I got up and prayed this morning. Or maybe it's the morning you slept through the alarm, you didn't get up or whatever. Maybe you usually spend your time with God in the mornings and you didn't. And then like later on in the day, you drop your phone and crack the screen. And you're like, oh God, I'm sorry I didn't get up this morning. And we can have this view of a God that we have to constantly appease. We've got to scratch his back and then he'll scratch our back. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Look at the birds of the air. They don't get anything. Like they don't even think, they're not even thinking about tomorrow. They're just flying around doing their thing. And yet God loves them. They have no concept, no understanding of who God is, and yet God is madly in love with them. And then he says, look at the lilies. And when he's speaking about the lilies, he's not talking about like the nice lilies growing in your garden. He's talking about essentially the weeds at the side of the road that everyone just walks by and is completely indifferent to. And Jesus is saying, look at these. He's, if you actually take them, it's actually the, the, the word in Greek that he uses there, or that Matthew uses here in the text, it's like investigate, like look at closely. And when you pick it up and you look at it, you're just like, wow, this is so intricate and beautiful and amazing and incredible. And to know that the God of the universe goes and puts that much attention and detail into this little flower that we just walk by and we hardly even realize exists. In fact, sometimes we just cut it up and we throw it in the fire. Jesus is driving home. Don't think that just because things seem so incredibly short-lived or insignificant that they are meaningless to God. Jesus presents a God who is madly in love with his creation before it has done anything to earn it. Then Jesus says this. He invites his disciples and all who follow him to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Another way that we might say that is is to prioritize, to make it the first and foremost thing in your life. 
One thing that I would say is redemptive about worry, I use that term loosely, is simply this, is that worry reveals to us what really matters to us. We worry about the things, the people, the situations that we care about. And as we begin to prioritize the kingdom of God, pursuing the things that God loves and God cares about and that are important to him, and as we seek his righteousness and essentially seeking the things that his heart beats for, our hierarchy of needs begins to change. The things that we used to care about, we suddenly are able to look at differently and say, I don't know if that's really that important to me anymore. I remember uh, hearing a story about a friend of mine I met a number of years ago. We went away on a, on a mission trip together. And he, was, uh, he grew up in Angola. He was a missionary kid. And so he saw an incredibly war-torn country that was impacted by all sorts of poverty. And when he was about five or six years old, he made the flight back to Canada to visit some relatives. And it's a long flight. He gets off the plane. He comes off of it and his fa- sees his family. And I guess they didn't have food on the flight or something. I don't know. It was a while back. And, uh, and the, the, one of the answers or whoever it was came up to him and said, oh, you must be starving. And his response was, getting this from like a five, six-year-old boy, he says, I'm not starving, but I am hungry. Like, how many of us with kids are just like, man, what do I have to do to get my kid to, like, think like that? But, but how true is that of all of us? But as we prioritize God's kingdom, as we seek that first, as we make that the number one thing in our lives, I'm constantly blown away at just even how our language changes. The things that we need, we're suddenly able to identify, actually, that's just something I want. And then sometimes we even go, well, I want it because I want my neighbor to look at me this way. Or I want, I want it because I think it's going to help me get more of this. Or whatever it might be. Now, when Jesus says this, he says, you're going to get everything else. He's not saying this is like a promise or a guarantee. This is not the backwards like, oh, well, well if I really prioritize this, then I'm going to get all the stuff I really wanted There have been countless hungry Christians throughout history, and there are still many hungry Christians today. Christians who haven't necessarily gotten all of their needs met, and we see them dying. This is not a promise that everything will work out for you if you would just don't worry. But but Jesus' invitation is to say, Realize that your life is about something so much bigger than just your own sustenance and survival and comfort and security. And he says, tomorrow is going to worry about itself. It's got enough stuff. There is enough opportunities, enough challenges that you are faced with today. Don't start living in the tomorrow because he's saying there is all sorts of opportunities for you today. Present what you have today and seek first God's kingdoms. So, so what do we do with our worry? Because uh, I've been doing this now for a little while. I've been a Christian for a while. I've been working in a church for a while. And I've gotten front row seats to seeing difficult and painful situations where people have come and shared with me some of the challenges that they're facing and there's a little part of me sometimes, as I shared before, that I hear this, and I think, seriously, Jesus? You're just saying, don't worry? 
What about when the cancer comes back? Or when the marriage is over? Or when that person that you care about, they're falling back into those destructive habits and addictions? What do we do in those situations where you're talking to someone and, and like every part of you just wants to say, it's going to be okay, but both of you know it won't be. What are we supposed to do with our worry in those sorts of situations? And Jesus doesn't give us breathing techniques. He doesn't tell us to meditate more or to journal more or to practice gratitude more. And Jesus doesn't even tell us to pray more and read our Bible more. Instead, Jesus points to his kingdom, to seek first his kingdom. He points us to losing ourselves in a community of people who've been given such a completely different way of seeing the world that they've been so empowered by God's spirit to be radically generous with all that they have and all that they are. Because the kingdom of God is not just some place that you go when you die. It is a social reality. It is a shared life together of those who call Jesus Lord and have submitted their lives to God. They've surrendered their loves and said, God, we want you to change our hearts and to make us love what you love. And they no longer play by the same rules or live for the same values as the culture around them. So how does the kingdom of God respond to the overwhelming worries that we will be faced with? And I simply wanted to read this. This is, this is my prayer for how the church can respond in the face of such difficult and challenging situations that various different people will go through. It's my prayer that the church could honestly say this to one another. If you lose everything, we will be here to support you. We will make sure that you have enough food. We will help you pay the rent, the mortgage, the bills, or we will open up our home and make sure that you have a roof over your head. We will walk through this with you every step of the way. We will cry with you. We will listen when you need to speak. We will tell you what to do when you are too overwhelmed to make decisions for yourself. We will sit in silence with you when there is nothing to say. We will mourn with you. We will help with drives. We will clean your house. We will pray with you. We will pray for you. We will help you discover God working in your life even when you are blinded by the difficult circumstances you are facing. And if you die, we will take care of your family and the people you care about that you leave behind. We can't tell you that it will be okay, but we can tell you that you will not have to face this alone. This is Jesus' response to worry. He doesn't give us a technique. He gives us the church. A community that so embodies God's care that it can sustain and empower us through the darkest times and struggles. At the very center of this sermon that Jesus gives us, the Sermon on the Mount, is this thing that we as the church call the Lord's Prayer. And chances are, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church for a long time, you probably know it. 
And, and something that has become so much more profound to me over the last couple of years is I've seen the church walk with people through challenges and pains and, and situations that are so overwhelming is that when we pray this prayer, the opening line just rings that much truer to me every time. And it's simply this phrase, it's our Father. And so often I've just kind of got through that. It's like you kind of pray that part and it's just our Father, it's just directed to God. But the, but the reality of what does it mean when we say our Father? our shared Father. And it wakes me up to this significant truth about the Lord's Prayer, which is this. You never pray that prayer alone. And you never pray that prayer just for yourself. And when you get to a line like, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, it is not just simply a prayer for ourselves, but it is a prayer for all those who call themselves a part of the body of Christ. This morning, we're going to take communion together. This practice that the church has done from its very inception and conception, and the idea behind this is that you get a whole bunch of people together and you remember the life that Jesus has lived the life that Jesus gave, and the life that Jesus continues to give through his sacrifice to us. And as we gather together and we share the bread and we share the drink, it is a reminder that what Jesus has provided is enough. And it is a reminder that the different struggles and the different things that we go through as a community are not ours to carry all by ourselves, but is something that we get to share together. That no matter what you are facing, you are not alone. So I want to invite the servers to come forward. And what we're going to do is we're going to distribute the bread and the grape juice. And we're all going to hold on to it. And then once everyone's got some, we are all going to take part in the meal that Jesus has given us together. And to be reminded that in the midst of the various different struggles that anyone goes through and the various different worries that can so often be so overwhelming, is that you are not alone. And that together, that together we can seek First, God's kingdom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not indifferent to us and to your creation. We thank you that we don't have to try and win you over, but that in your love, your grace, that you just lavishly love on us. Thank you that you are just so infatuated with your creation. And even in the midst of our sin and our brokenness and, and all the things that are wrong with the world, that, that for whatever reason you still love it so much that, that, that you would send Jesus, that you would come, that you would, that you would take our sin upon yourself and set us free from it and invite us into a new kind of life and make us into a new kind of people. Thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was poured out and the life and the family 
that we discover as we share it together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.